Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. In the past, I identified as a disabled cyborg, and now my body is even more of a cyborg as I am tethered and power-dependent on a number of machines to stay alive. Knowing a power outage or malfunction can become a life-or-death situation can really do a number on you. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. I first talked with disability rights activist and writer Alice Wong back in 2020. She'd just edited a collection of essays called Disability Visibility. Since then, she's published another book, a memoir, called Year of the Tiger, An Activist's Life. It's unlike any other memoir I've read, with a mix of writing and excerpts of talks and interviews she's given, including an excerpt from her Death, Sex, and Money episode, where Alice told me, with biting humor, about the horrors of high school for her. Just before that memoir came out, Alice had a major medical emergency— and she ended up losing the ability to speak and eat. We want to share that original episode with you again this week. We reached out to Alice for an update, so we sent her a list of questions. She recorded her responses using a text-to-speech app. Last summer, I had a series of medical crises that led to four weeks in the ICU. It was one of the most harrowing experiences in my life. I lost the ability to speak and eat. I now have a tracheostomy that is attached to a ventilator that breathes for me 24 hours a day and a feeding tube in my stomach and small intestine that is attached to a machine for hydration and nutrition. I had to adjust and learn new ways to communicate. I missed my voice dearly with my inflections, guffaws, profanity, and sarcasm. But I live in an era where apps like the one I am using right now give me a chance to speak, albeit in a sterile voice that mispronounces words which drives me up the wall. While I was in the hospital, I communicated by writing in a notebook or mouthing words and making gestures to my sisters. When I got home and slowly recovered, the strength returned to my hands and I was able to type and text again. Alice spent four weeks in the ICU before going back to her home in San Francisco. And almost a year later, she's still resting and being extremely cautious. Here's some real talk. Except for my family and team of paid caregivers who come in and out of my home, the last time I had a hangout with a group of friends was about five months ago. I'm lonely, but I'm not alone. I am yearning for warmer weather so I can host outdoor gatherings and party hard with my friends. But my overall feeling is absolute rage at the way disabled and immunocompromised people have been abandoned by the state and society in general. Millions of people will be hurt when the COVID-related public health emergency protections expire. 
Under special rules enacted by Congress, states were barred from dropping people from Medicaid during the pandemic, but that safety net will disappear and eligible people might slip through the cracks again. Alice is describing how during the pandemic, Congress included a continuous enrollment policy for Medicaid, the program that provides health insurance for some children and adults with disabilities who are pregnant, who are low income, or some combination. States received extra federal funds, so if someone became eligible for Medicaid in the last three years, they couldn't kick people off the rolls. That expires on March 31st, and the government estimates that up to 15 million Americans may lose their Medicaid coverage. Alice was born with a form of muscular dystrophy, and when we spoke in 2020, she told me about when she first enrolled in Medicaid. You could hear the BiPAP machine she wears to help her breathe when we talked back then. She said enrolling in Medicaid was a rite of passage for her when she became an adult, that she did at the insistence of her father. When I turned 18, he said, okay, you're 18 now, and you should apply for Medicaid. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, I was like, what is this happening? And my dad said, you know, you're now an adult. You are entitled to this. And, uh, you know, just think about the years of the huge cost to our family. You know, I was a young, you know, know-it-all, you know, teenager. And I was like, Betty James, like, isn't that, you know, for poor people? And, you know, I was like, yes, it is. And I realized, you know, what it really means and that how vital these programs are because they really keep our community Connected, you know, they really, you know, at least help support those who have the least. And that allows me to live at home and, you know, live with personal assistance instead of an institution. But uh, like many other these tested programs, to be on Medicaid solely because of my personal deeds uh, I'm not allowed to have over $2,000 in my bank account and uh, there's actually a cap on how much I can earn per month so all of these things have kept me from having you know 401ks you know the usual things that's you know, people tell adults they didn't have for like as a death stage for the future. I don't have any of those things. What's the monthly cap on what you're able to earn? In uh, California, I am on one that's uh, called the Working Disabled Program that allows me to earn up to two and a half times the poverty rates. So two and a half times the poverty rate, I believe, is to the bid forty thousand. I think the last time I looked, I think it's forty-ish thousand. Mm-hmm. How how do you feel about that earning limit? Does it feel like a relief 
that there's only so much you can try to earn, or does it feel like a cap on your ambition? It is absolutely a cap of my ambition. I think of it as one of the clearest examples of systemic ableism. You know, the fact that there's a limit purely because the way our society is organized, that if you need assistance to live every day, you know, let's say, get out of bed, have people people that work for you at your home to help you do the everyday activities of life. For those reasons alone, to to survive, you're expected to have a trade-off, to live, you know, at poverty or near poverty. You know, that people don't realize is that to be poor or close to poverty, it takes a lot of work. I mean, it's just, it's basically a part-time job in terms of making sure you document everything because you're constantly, as a disabled person, asked to prove your your disability all the time. Just, you know, you have to always kind of read Reconfirm, yes, like, I do need these services, and yes, you have to repeat, like, all the different things that you cannot do, just to jump through the hoops to make sure that you are eligible. Yeah, and it's this mix of you having to to show the government that you are both deserving of help and also dependent enough, like, need help enough. So it's this combination of showing worthiness and also um, vulnerability. Yeah, these things are often in conflicts. Yeah. So there's always, like, for me, like, hypervigilance about my big balance, about my assets. Because no matter what happens in terms of no amount of extra income is worth not being on Medicaid. Because basically, Medicaid is a lifeline for me. Alice grew up near Indianapolis, the oldest of three sisters. Her parents immigrated to the United States from Hong Kong a few years before she was born. She was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy as a toddler. My disability world was completely separate from the Chinese-American community that I was part of. Uh, so we became involved in the local postural dystrophy organization. So, so we did, you know, various events, uh, maybe once or twice a year. And, you know, that was a very, you know, white world. And uh, I almost never saw anybody like myself there. Then we also had a very small Chinese American community that was uh, was, uh, centered around a church. And uh, yeah, that was just, that was kind of my my safe place, you know, people that 
you know, start like us and be like that. My sisters, sisters and I were lucky that uh, we did have friends that we should grow up with, that there were tragedies of marriage as well. Mm-hmm. And how did your personal care work when you were a kid growing up in your house? Did, was it family members who helped take care of you? Yeah, so that's that's basically it. Uh, you know, it started with mostly my parents doing all the care, especially as I got older and needed more help, you know, that they were always there. And, you know, then as my sisters got a little older, you know, they were involved as well. Like, you know, it's really kind of made, uh, was this glue, the fact that every member of my family helped me with my personal care. In a lot of ways, I was kind of a hub where we were all connected. Did you enjoy high school? Oh, gosh. Well, do you want the truth? Yes. <laughs> do you want the truth? Okay, hang on. I am so glad you asked me this question because now I can just publicly call out my high school. I just was so eager to leave that high school. Mm. Like, I was one of those kids who had senior-itis, like, way before I was a senior. <laughs> like, like, I knew life was going to be so much better once I got into college. You know, I got to tell you, you know, I got in touch with my, my rage. Uh-huh. At, at an early age, I... It has served me well. I will just say that. You can thank your high school experience for tapping yeah. into your rage. <laughs> I want to understand just just so so I so I get what was what was um, the feeling at the time. Did you have an experience of were people directly cruel to you and bullied you, or was it more the feeling of? just being invisible and not seen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very ironic because it's, I wasn't visible and yet so painfully visible at the same time. Mm. You know, I was one of the few wheelchair users at that school. You know, so my locker was a desk in the nurse's office because all the lockers were inaccessible and they just didn't even, you know, think about, oh, like, maybe we should have segregated her this way. Uh, another thing, by bus, it had to drop me off to my high school about 30 or 40 minutes before school started. Oh. Because the, that was a bus that took other disabled students to another school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would get to school and it would be pitch dark. 
but I was just like sit alone and just wait for the students to arrive. But that was my high school experience. I will say that I had a teacher that refused to uh, just advance me to the next level of a drama class that I was taking. So, you know, I had a which crushed my dream. So, if you have time for this story, I'll tell you. Yeah, I want to hear it. I love the high school it's, stories. It's, I, did, uh, <laughs> I did not realize we were going to go in this direction, but I am here for this. <laughs> You're just giving me a gift. Uh, the salty gift. Okay. So, as a sophomore, one of the things that I loved as an elective was drama. So I took uh, drama one, taught by this tutor. Mm-hmm. At the end of the year, I had a B, and I signed up for drama two for the next year. And she called me. After class, I said, I just need to speak to your guidance counselor. I'm like, oh, okay. So I go to my guidance counselor, and she said, the teacher was not going to advance me to trauma too, because she had to search whether I could fulfill the requirements. And let me tell you, mm. The passing requirements. There was a session on pantomime. Pantomime. <laughs> and because I'm a wheelchair user, she just presumed I can't do pantomime from a freaking chair. Wow. And I was like, are you sure? She said, yes. So I went back to the teacher, and I said, I guess I asked her to, like, you know, reconsider. She just shook her head. I said, I'm sorry, I don't think so. You know, I was just, it was one of the few things that I enjoyed. And she said I couldn't continue this because of my disability. And. She had no imagination or even willingness to be flexible. And for an adult, you know, especially an educator who supposedly, you know, is supposed to, you know, bring up young people and get the best out of them, she... She got the best rage out of me. I'm, I'm curious. So you you felt rage? Did you, did you as a teenager? Did you tell people what had happened that that had been withheld from you? You know, I told my friends, and you know, they all felt horrible. But you know, we didn't like protest. We didn't like create a ruckus. And you know, the forty six year old me would have done some serious stuff. But, uh, you know, at that time, I think 
I was already so self-conscious and I frankly because of these the counselor and a teacher I didn't think anybody else in the administration honestly would have my back mm. I also didn't really share this that much with my parents because and I regret that like now mm. but uh, you know a lot of times you know uh, I think they were very kind of careful how they advocated for me mm-hmm. and I think that's okay too just you know in a lot of ways I place the responsibility of advocating for myself and that's you know how I learned to be self-reliant and just how to make a ruckus later on yeah look at me now (laughs) look at me now coming up Alice finally gets to go off to college but the reality of attending was hard it was a real you know letdown for me I mean I I had dreams I had ambitious, I had friends there. But, you know, again, you know, it's about the the vote game because, you know, the real dream was to leave, to leave Indiana, to be honest. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Alice Wong started college in 1992, two years after the Americans with Disabilities Act became law. She enrolled at Earlham College, her dream school, a Quaker liberal arts college about an hour and a half away from home, where Alice says only one dorm was accessible to her at the time. I was the first wheelchair user ever. They had to renovate a bathroom just so I could use that bathroom. So this was the one bathroom in my dorm on campus that I could use. This was the only bathroom on campus you could use? Yes. Wow. You know, I was determined to attend this private school because you know, I was driven by the academics. So it was a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you know, it was thrilling to be on my own. When you went to 
Earlham when you first when you first left left home and lived in that dorm. Was that the first time you had personal care assistants who weren't related to you? Yes, yes, it was. So you're an 18 year old woman, and just what was? Did anyone help you figure out how to communicate with them about how you wanted to be touched, treated, cared for? How did you learn about that? Yeah, yeah, that was a real learning curve, and I think being able to direct my care with my family members, you know, was definitely helpful, I think. You know, when you rely on others for those activities of daily living, um, speaking for myself, but I think um, other people in my situation would also think my agree with me that you learn how to listen very well. You learn how to pick up nonverbal cues. You also learn how to really communicate in a, in a way that's effective. So, you know, you really learn how to, like, sense the situation and also adjust to it. So, like, you know, there were different people that came. Sometimes, you know, I would have somebody I'd never met before, and they have to help me use the bathroom. So... Mm-hmm. You know, I had to be, you know, comfortable with my body, comfortable with somebody, uh, you know, touching my body who I just met for the first time. But, you know, I've always tried to stress that I'm the expert. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I'm there to tell you, like, this is the way I prefer to be lifted or, you know, X, Y, Z, because... You know, bossy pants. You know, I had to, <laughs> you know, it was not a problem for me to say, uh, can you do it this way? Uh, but you just had to be super organized in your brain, you know, and also be like really clear. Wait, when you say organized in your brain, do you mean what? What does that mean? Like, what are the things that you're having to make sure are Sorted. Oh. Yeah, so it's always anticipating what's next, anticipating what to do wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody, what if somebody drops me, or what if somebody doesn't want to do something the way I ask them to? You know, all the different kind of variables, but also. Be mindful again, like, how much time do I have left? Uh You know, am I going to get all the stuff that I need help with another time before they leave? Because they won't be back for another five or six hours. So, like, there's a constant internal evaluation of, you know, getting my stuff together. You know, after a few months, you know, it was, it did become more difficult to get around campus when it was snowy and icy. And I got sick. And uh, I actually ended up 
having respiratory failure, mm. and almost died, not even halfway into my first semester. Mm-hmm. So, um, once that happened, I actually had to take up a year off of school. Mm-hmm. So I went back home, was completely sad, when all my friends were, you know, living the campus life. You know, I had to be the grown-up and decide, okay, I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to commute to Indianapolis and downtown where there was a uh, Indiana University at Indianapolis campus. So mm-hmm. this is a the local commuter campus that's a lot of, you know, non-traditional and just, you know, working people already have who are there for maybe a second degree or a midlife, you know, career change. This was as far different as you could get from Earl of College. Yeah. And it was a real, you know, letdown for me. I mean, I, I had dreams, I had ambitions, and, you know, it was incredibly you know, difficult at the beginning. I mean, again, I'm so thankful for my parents because they drove me to class. I mean, you know, I didn't have an accessible car. You know, they were there for me. It actually ended up having a fantastic experience at Indiana University that completely surprised me. It strikes me, Alice, it's interesting that it was the the campus that served non-traditional students um, that was the one that could imagine possibibilities for you that people in high yeah. at, at your high school or at the private fancy liberal arts school could yeah. not. Yeah, and I feel like that was such a a humbling thing because with all of my kind of assumptions and, you know, judgments, you know, I had wonderful opportunities to learn and grow. You know, it really was a better situation, even though I didn't have all of the bells and whistles that one would want. Mm-hmm. As a young person, for all the, you know, I didn't go to parties. I, I didn't do anything wild. But that's why I am the party animal that I am now. <laughs> Alice finally left Indiana for San Francisco in 1997 to get her master's in medical sociology at the University of California, San Francisco. And being there was a lot of what she'd hoped for. It immediately felt like hope because suddenly you saw like so many Asian Americans. Uh-huh. It was such a it was such a relief. It was like I was just so like 
thrilled and of course the food like the the culture the weather the diversity just all of the things that are right at your footstep your doorstep I think that was so exciting that was really the lifestyle you know I envisioned for myself what did you do on the weekends when in that time of your Ooh. life when you were first getting to know the city yeah I was just so lucky just exploring all the different neighborhoods, like going to parks, going to like Golden Gate Park. I was actually walking distance from my campus to Golden Gate Park, which mm-hmm. is amazing. And, you know, I love taking public transit. So, like, public transit was accessible. That was thrilling to not be able to go to Berkeley and Oakland all by myself. Uh-huh. Like that, I, that would have never happened. Um, Had you ever I, done that before? Like to, to be able to travel around the city never, by yourself? Never, never ever. So that was extremely, extremely thrilling. And all the little things was just an adventure. When you moved to San Francisco, did your parents also move? Well, funnily enough, at that time, it was incredibly difficult finding and retaining workers with really, there was no ladder of ways to advance, and there were very few benefits. Mm-hmm. So at that time, it was you know, it's just so competitive for so many jobs that are just far better paid. Mm-hmm. That the plan was that I was going to, you know, stretch out on my own. But my mom, she was there to help me through the adjustment period. You know, once I found a set of people. You know, she ended up staying with me. And what was really funny is my mom ended up having her own kind of renaissance because she went back to school hmm. when I was in school. She went to San Francisco. She first took classes through community college. Mm-hmm. And then she went to San Francisco State University. So my mom ended up getting a bachelor's of social work. I love that, that she moved out to help you and and what could from the outside, you know, just sort of like when you hear that part of the story, you think like, oh, maybe you felt hemmed in by having your mom there and maybe your mom felt some sense of obligation, but that both of you were able to find a real sense of freedom and expansion in this new life together is so cool. It was her time, you know, after raising three kids and yeah. being, you know, a mom, just, it was her time. And I think that's, that I was really excited to see. 
Alice's dad eventually moved to San Francisco to join them as well. And these days, while Alice's parents still help with her care, she's also thinking about their care as they get older. During this pandemic, you know, and even before that, I was planning ahead and going to, you know, hire a new set of workers because I did have some opium workers you know, throughout the years that would, you know, provide supplemental, supplemental assistance because, you know, it shouldn't be all of my parents. But uh, with this pandemic and not feeling safe, yeah, it's definitely not, it's not the time right now. Mm-hmm. And I have this, you know, I have this luxury of living with my parents who are my campaign workers. You know, we, uh, ironically, right around the time the pandemic should have really started to emerge that uh, we all did our advanced directives. I think, mm. you know, it's very just strange timing, but also it's a lot of adulting that's you know, I'm glad I did because you just kind of never know. I just need to plan ahead. Wait, so when you just did your advanced directive? I did it around March. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it was just very kind of a funny kind of coincidence or convergence of uh, events. So, yeah. you know. So you're in your mid-40s. What prompted you to do your advanced directive in March? Well, you know, my parents were, uh, you know, estate planning because they're both in their 70s. And yeah, we really want to make sure that, you know, their wishes are, you know, fully in a document and, you know, they get everything in order. So that's, my sisters and I later on, you know, down the line, we'll have to uh, we'll have to make some really difficult decisions. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've had these conversations and I've been meaning to do it for years, but you know, it's so difficult when you have parents who are a bit stubborn and <laughs> both of my parents are a bit kind of creeped out by it. But uh, <laughs> you know, but they kept you know they. You know, the, us as kids, adult kids, uh, we try to, like, encourage them that this is, you know, this is good, you know, we try to, we should get through this. Have you noticed your relationship with them change as you're noticing them aging? That after after a lifetime of them looking out for you, are you noticing some of their physical limitations in a way that is changing the way you all relate to each other? Yeah, I would say that even though in my early life, you know, I did rely on them for a lot, you know, just even at an early age, we were all very interdependent, as the oldest child, you know, I did do, I did help a lot, you know, in, my, in different ways. Like, 
I do, I contributed to the family that was more than just somebody who required care. Mm-hmm. And, I th- and I think they, they also saw me that way as well. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, when I was younger, I was really good with, like, reading directions and just, like, give them on the road. Like, I would just, you know, don't forget to exit off this highway. You know, that was me. Uh-huh. Boss of yeah. Yeah, boss <laughs> I would plan, like, to do all the research about, like, where we're going to stay, where we're going to eat, what we're going to do. The one appointed me, but I was a self-appointed organizer in chief. <laughs> And I'm proud of that. And, you know, I think uh, my parents also kind of, they appreciate me as much as I appreciate them. That was my conversation with Alice Wong in 2020. Now, in 2023, Alice told us she's still recovering and getting used to her new ways of communicating, but she's back writing and still very active on social media. I feel very fortunate that I can still write with relative ease with these blessed bony claws of mine. Being unable to speak heightened the need to be succinct when typing a response because people speak fast in conversations and I'm just trying to keep up. So this has made me a better writer, I think. This wasn't the first time that I almost died, but I have been filled with an urgency to create and share my story through my writing. Life is too damn short and I still have a lot I want to say. And I'm happy to share that this spring I will be a columnist for Teen Vogue, where I will write about being disabled in a non-disabled world. While my words can slice with the precision of a scalpel, I developed other ways to communicate with others. I created some rudimentary sign language to indicate the need for my lungs to be suctioned or my body turned to my caregivers. My family and caregiving team have also become pretty good at reading my lips which I still find amazing. When I am angry and frustrated, which happens often, I will bang things on my desk. And I still have my fantastic facial expressions which will let people know how pissed off I am at them. One time a dentist was completely dismissive of me and he was only talking to my sister and I will tell you I threw daggers at him through my eyes and the profanities I mouthed. He got the message even if he couldn't hear me. He got the message, she said. Alice also had to advocate for herself at the end of her ICU stay last summer. Initially, the hospital pushed her to consider going to live in a nursing facility. Alice and her family did not want that. So a friend of Alice's eventually started a GoFundMe to help pay for her ongoing care at home. They've raised over $300,000 so far. It currently costs $600 a day for the private caregivers that I have right now in addition to other paid caregivers through Medicaid. 
The discharge planner's comments reaffirmed my commitment as a disability justice activist because no one should live in cages and everyone deserves to have their needs met and cared for in the community. Good care and caregiving requires a radical orientation and transformation of how we value people. Good care values the labor of the caregiving workforce. Good care means we as a society understand that it is not a weakness to need help. That's Alice Wong. You can find her memoir, Year of the Tiger, An Activist's Life, wherever you get your books. And we've also linked to some of Alice's more recent essays in our show notes. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Afi Yellow Duke. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azoulay, Lindsay Foster-Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Baze Hohen. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks. That's P-I-C-S. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to Shelley Wade in Anchorage, Alaska, who is a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. Join Shelley and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Back in 2020, I also asked Alice how her teenage self would have reacted if she could have brought her essay collection to school. I would have probably shoved that book in front of this tutor's face <laughs> and say, hey, look at these badass disabled people doing all kinds of things. Don't play me. It's a thinking that I can't do freaky pantomime. <laughs> you know? I mean, I mean, I have the receipts. And then I would have wheeled on out of there. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 